November is Southside's annual Praise-Giving Revival, a month-long emphasis on revival, prayer, and praise. Will you participate with us in praising God publicly this month by sharing a praise? One way you can do this is by visiting southsidebaptist.net slash praise. It's not enough that Jesus is my Lord or Jesus is your Lord. 1 Corinthians compels the church to ask a different question. Church, is Jesus our Lord? In the closing text of this letter, the apostle presents a series of final instructions meant to keep the church from failing and propel the church forward in power. What we do with these commands will ultimately reveal who our leader is and who we love. This message preaches from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 through 24. It is the final sermon in a preaching series through 1 Corinthians to the church. The title of this message is, Our Lord, Come. Welcome to the Southside Sermons Podcast. I am Christopher Campbell, pastor of Southside Baptist Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. This message you're about to hear is from God's Word and is offered to you with this prayer that God would give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey His Word. May your faith be strengthened in Jesus and may you grow in your knowledge of Him. At the conclusion of this letter to the church, the apostle gives his final instructions and his love. In verses 13 and 14, the apostle abruptly and in rapid succession states clearly what the church in Corinth is to do and how they are to do it because they are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. This never changes throughout this letter. The church's identity and responsibilities remain unchanged to the very end. Why? Because God made them what they are. It wasn't a work of their own doing. They could not sanctify themselves. They could not call themselves. God sanctified them in Christ Jesus. God called them to be saints. And God does this for us too. If God has sanctified us in Christ Jesus, and if God has called us to be saints, then that is what we are because God says so. The words sanctified and saints used in the opening greeting of this letter explain how this church of God is distinct from all the other churches of the world. There are other churches in the world, but this church is the church of God and is distinctly his, belonging to him. This church, God's people, and a church is people, God bought them, God owns them, God saves them, God graces them, God gifts them, God unites them, and God calls them into fellowship with him 
through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why? Why would God do that for his church in Corinth? Why would God do that for Southside Baptist Church in Decatur, Alabama? Why would God be so gracious to, as we have seen in the Corinthian letter, to a church so divided, so dysfunctional, so deceived, even disturbed, and in some cases even dead? Why would God do that? And the answer is his love. God loves the world. God loves his church. God loves you, and God loves me. Why does God love? The scriptures tell us because that is who God is. God is love, and as he is, so God has made us, his church, to be. The fruit of his spirit is love. And so our text says this by way of final instruction, and it is no insignificant instruction. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Nothing is exempted. Everything we do as the Christ community is to be done in love, or it is not to be done at all. We are to bear one another's burdens in love. We are to discern the needs among us and meet them in love. We suffer when one member suffers. We rejoice when one member rejoices because that's what God does too. God loves. We are not instructed to love for the sake of love itself, no. We do not love because of the lusts of our own flesh. If we are left to decide what love is on our own, we would corrupt it as we do with everything else that is carnal and worldly and fleshly. But all things are to be done in love because of our love for God, as an outworking of God's love that poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We talk about praise giving. God has given us his spirit and his love. In other words, it is only by the Holy Spirit of God that we can fulfill this command in love in all things as we ought to love. Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is our love for one another that is seen by all people, by others, and witnesses to our faith, our genuine faith in Christ. Jesus isn't saying love your enemies here. He's saying love each other. Love your brothers and sisters in the church, your fellow disciples. Jesus has to tell us to do this. And by loving one another, people will know that we belong to Jesus, how we relate and act toward our own. All things in the church and done by the church are to be done in love, 
just like Jesus loved, with a giving, selfless, sacrificial, submissive and obedient love that always cares more for the other person than it does for oneself. We've learned this throughout 1 Corinthians. Church, we can get a lot of things wrong, but we will never be wrong, and we will never err, and we will never be mistaken when we do whatever we do in love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Concerning our sin, Jesus could have said, that's your problem, not mine. Jesus would have been right to walk away and do nothing about our sin because sin was our problem. Sin was my problem, not his. Jesus never sinned. I sinned. Jesus loved God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. I did not and could not and would not. Sin was never his problem. But in love, in love, look what Jesus did. Jesus made my sin his problem. Do you see that, church? Rather than being unloving and saying, that's your problem, not mine, Jesus instead demonstrated for us what love is through what he did. Jesus made our problem his own. That is love. Jesus took our sin and said, that's mine. Jesus became sin and dealt with it by giving his all, his everything, his life, so that sin would no longer be my problem or define my life or obstruct my fellowship with God. Jesus, in demonstration of the Father's love through his death, burial, and resurrection, made of me what I could never be, the righteousness of God in him. And that is what we do for one another, church. We make each other's problems our own and meet them as God gives us the means and grace and ability to do so. That is love. That is God's love that we are to have and to show and act one toward another. This is the command, once again, to the church. Look at it with me, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. This love is the umbrella that covers all the other actions of the church. If we have not love, I am nothing. If I have not love, I gain nothing. And so this command finds place here at the end of this letter to the church, and God has a very good and intentional reason for instructing us to keep this command. Because if the church loses its love, it loses its spiritual power, it loses its identity, it loses everything. God would not waste his words by giving and preserving this command for us if we were not in jeopardy of failing to keep it at any given moment. Grammatically, this command is what is a present imperative, meaning it is a command for right now, not for yesterday, not for tomorrow, but now. 
Love is something we must always keep before us, church. It is something we must practice or else we will lose it. And you might say, well, I don't believe that. I can't lose love. Yes, you can and yes, we can. Jesus gave us an example of a church that did lose their love. Revelation chapter two, to the church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but watch this. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The church must always keep before us an awareness of the perils that will destroy us. Let me say that again. The church must always keep before us an awareness of the perils that will destroy us. But also, the church must always keep before us an awareness of the power that deploys us. These instructions at the end of this letter are necessary instructions because they serve two functions. The first is to warn us as the church about ways we will fail if we are not careful. And the second is to remind us about how we will succeed with power if we are faithful. Jesus in blinding, terrifying glory said again, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus watches everything that is done in his church and the Lord himself will take away from any local church the light and power that he has given her if she ceases to love. But by this warning, we also know that a church that loves does have light and spiritual power because of the presence of the risen Christ with her. Oh, how important is this instruction? Let all that you do be done in love. But acting in love is not the only instruction given at the end of this letter to the church. There are four other commands immediately preceding this one concerning love that in like manner reveal ways in which we must not fall together so that we may continue in the Spirit's power together. Look with me at verse 13. The first command, also in the present tense, also to be done in love, is this. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. The first command is be watchful. We could say it this way. Look out. Be on alert. Don't fall asleep. We grow old. We get tired. The tendency of a local church, especially one like ours that's been around 110 years, is to get very comfortable and very sleepy and very unconcerned. That's why we have 
praise-giving revival to wake us up. Because if we are sleepy and unconcerned and comfortable, that's right where the enemy wants us to be because that's when we become powerless. You say, we're too old to do all the things we once did, but let me ask you, are you too old to pray? The best way to be watchful, watch this, is to be prayerful. Before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus went to Gethsemane to pray. Look for the connection of watchfulness and prayer in these verses. Matthew 26 tells it like this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. That word watch, watch with me, is the same root word in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, for be watchful. Watch with me, be alert with me. This was an invitation not just to stay awake and watch with Jesus, but it was an invitation to pray with him. Verse 39 goes on, and going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? You could not pray with me one hour, Peter? Jesus then said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh does not get stronger, church. It gets weaker. The older we grow, the frailer our flesh becomes, and the more we must pray. A local church that is alert to the times, perceptive of the future, aware of the imminent return of Christ, that is a church that understands the need for prayer. That's a church that prays. Wake up, we've been told in this letter. We don't have much time left. People are going to hell, lost without Christ, and we, the church, are Christ's ambassadors and witnesses with the message of salvation and access to God's throne. What are we doing with these things? Are we asleep in the kingdoms of our own making? Or are we seeking God's kingdom and God's righteousness by being obedient to God's revealed will? Notice how Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. He said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We can't pray according to our own wills. If we do, we're not praying. We can't pray if we ignore God's revealed word. How many times that I have heard someone say this, well, oh, I've prayed about this, pastor, or I've prayed about that pastor, except that what they're praying about is a direct contradiction to God's revealed word. We are to pray, church, in all things, but there are some things that we do not have to pray about in order to know what to do. If God says it, 
No prayer is needed to determine whether or not we should obey. We obey what God says, and we pray as we obey. Prayer does not submit God to our own will. Prayer submits our will to God's will. This is how Jesus teaches us that we as his followers, we as his disciples, and we as his church are to be watchful. Wake up, church. Be alert. Be watchful. Literally, stay watchful. If we fall asleep or get distracted from our mission, we will lose our spiritual light and power. Be watchful, but also stand firm in the faith. Verse 13 again, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. If the command to be watchful was to look out, then for the command to stand firm, we might say, lock down, lock down. If something is locked down, it is set. It isn't going anywhere. No one is coming in, no one is going out. It's unchanging, it's resolved. The church must lock down and be unchanging in matters of faith. If you think about it, it's quite an amazing command to stand firm in the faith. The last time that I checked, God's word defined faith as something that is not seen. How can we stand firm in something that we cannot see? That the apostle has already answered that question in the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, in that wonderful explanation of the gospel in which we stand, by repeating twice these words, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. God's word is how we, church, stand firm in faith. Holy Scripture, the Bible, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. This is how the church stands firm in faith. This is how we keep standing, if we are standing at all. Church, the greatest mistake we will ever make or have ever made as Southside Baptist Church will be getting away from God's word, even just a little bit. Go back through this book of 1 Corinthians that we've preached through and just look at how they failed. They failed many times over when they didn't know, do not be deceived, do you not know, they were ignorant, and didn't obey the word of God, the instruction of God. Don't be led away from the word. Stand firm in the faith. God knows what is best for his household, and we as a church must submit to his leading, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't like it. We have no light or power if we are not in the word. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
This is why this command is given to the church here at the end of this letter. The church will be tempted to surrender, but God calls her instead to stand, and stand not in our own schemes, but to stand in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. Be watchful, that is, look out. Stand firm in the faith, lock down. And now the third command in verse 13, act like men. Verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. We can remember this one by the words, live up. Look out, lock down, live up, act like men. We, the church, must live up to what God has made of us. We must grow up to maturity and be no longer babes. Women, this applies to you too. This is not about men versus women here. Manliness in this verse stands opposed to childish ways. We've seen that throughout this letter. We are not to be childish any longer. But men, it's worth noting that the manly image is not completely lost here either. A church needs godly men who act like men and are courageous like men. Not people pleasers, not men who lick their finger and stick it in the wind to see which direction it's blowing to make decisions according to people's opinions. That's a disastrous way to operate as a church. God does not want people pleasers in his church. God wants servants, servants of Christ. We need godly men who love the Lord and stand in the truth and are willing to lead their homes and serve their church with honor and integrity and conviction before Almighty God. Success in this world does not qualify a person for leadership or ministry in Christ's church. It never has and it never will. But too often, that's who the church elevates and follows. That's not God's design. The church needs at the helm and at the feet spiritual men, godly men, not fleshly men who infiltrate, manipulate, and intimidate to impose their will upon Christ's church. The church needs men who are wholly submitted to God's will and God's way and have the courage, church, to stand with truth even if it's uncomfortable because their allegiance belongs to none other than Christ as servants of Christ who follow Christ. That takes courage. That requires acting like men. These are not wasted words here at the end of this letter, for God knows the perils that can lead a church into failure, and God also knows the way to power in a church. We need spiritual maturity, not the kind that comes with age. You can be 80 years old and be a spiritual infant. Spiritual maturity does not mean knowledge. You don't have to be a teacher in the church to be spiritually mature. Spiritual maturity is the result 
of submission, submitting to God's authority and leadership and lordship. Spiritual maturity is Christ-likeness. Ephesians says, mature manhood is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If we are not walking with Christ, we, church, are not maturing. The apostle wrote in chapter three, verse one, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. In chapter 13, verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And again in chapter 14, brothers, do not be children in your own thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. This is God's instruction for his church because God knows we are inclined as a people to revert back to childish ways, compromising ways, comfortable ways, sleepy ways. Look out, lock down, live up, and fourthly, lean in. Verse 13 again, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong. This is the fourth command in verse 13, and it is the command to be strong. This is not an outward strength, but an inward strengthening of God in Christ. Ephesians 3.16 says it this way, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says it this way, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Church, we have nothing to offer God by way of strength, but spiritual strength offers God our frailty and our weaknesses and commits them to his capable care. When we are weak for the sake of Christ, then we are strong, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 10. God's power is for the strengthening of his church, for the fulfilling of gospel mission in the world. We are not strong for ourselves, but we are to be strengthened so that we might serve God through his body, his church. And the only way to receive that strengthening, God's word tells us, is through the Holy Spirit. And so we must be a spirit-led, spirit-strengthened church as we mature in Christ by standing on the word and keeping alert for his soon return. Romans chapter eight, verse 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. These four instructions, along with the command to do all things in love, summarize the message of 1 Corinthians. It is a glorious message about the church and her Lord. And this brings us now to the Christ conclusion. In the power of Christ, with the love of Christ, we, the church of Christ, look out, lock down, live up, lean in, and lastly, we labor on. 
The apostle has been reinforcing the summary verse of chapter 15 in these final remarks. Look at it with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. The apostle writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. As the apostle began this letter, he now ends it with the Lord. Our labor, vain as it may seem at times, is not in vain in the Lord. Every instruction given is an instruction dependent upon the Lord. To be watchful, that requires the patience of the Lord. To stand firm in the faith, that requires the endurance of the Lord. To act like men, that requires the courage of the Lord. To be strong, that requires the strength of the Lord. To love in all things, that requires the love of the Lord. Church, are we doing what we are doing as the church in love in the Lord? We don't belong to God without him. We are powerless without him. We are not his church without him. The appeal at the end of this letter is not so much an individual appeal to come to Christ as an individual, as much as it is an invitation for all of us to join in the covenant community of Christ. It's not enough that Jesus is my Lord, and he is. I'm not ashamed to say that. It's not enough that Jesus is your Lord, and I hope he is. I hope you know that. But if Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is your Lord, none of that matters if he's not our Lord, church. And so the time of decision has come. The call for covenant faithfulness is in view here. The words of the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So either love God, obey him, and be blessed, or love yourself or something else, disobey God, and be cursed. Which one will you choose, O church in Corinth? Which one will we choose, O Southside Baptist Church in Decatur, Alabama? The apostle makes one last appeal. I imagine him silencing his mouth, no longer dictating, that's how he would have uh, had this letter prepared. He would dictate it, speak it out, and he'd had an assistant write it. But imagine now this is where he got quiet, thinking very carefully, what am I going to say at the very end? And silently walking over to his assistant and picking up the pen. I'm just imagining, this isn't in the scripture, how this went down, but taking the pen from the assistant, reaching down to the paper of the letter to 1 Corinthians in its original form, adjusting it just a bit, taking the pen, and personally ending his letter to the church, not with spoken word, but with written word. 
And I will read that to us now with no further comment, for no further comment is needed. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. Thank you again for listening to this message. I pray that God would accomplish his purpose in you through the preaching, hearing, receiving, and believing of his word. If you wish to share any comments or questions about the message you have heard, please call Southside at 256-353-8814 or visit us on the web at southsidebaptist.net. Also, make sure to subscribe or follow this podcast to receive a new message each week.